1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein said it in carousel. June is busting out all over. It is June 1st. And even though the official start of summer is still off a little way, summer is underway. Schools are out, of course. The weather is heating up. And we've said it over and over again. This used to be a time when politics slowed down. And we would scramble to figure out what to talk about on shows like Political Rewind. The newspaper uh, had some issues in how much they could uh, write about politics in off-season. But there's no such thing as an off-season anymore in politics, as we will discover in our show today. Let me get right to our panel and begin discussing a variety of issues for uh, the show. Kevin Riley is my partner on the Thursday show from the AJC. Kevin, of course, is recently retired as editor-in-chief and now editor-at-large. How are you, Kevin? Bill,
2: well, it's great to be here, especially on a short week. I woke up in a panic this morning, afraid that I'd missed the show somehow or it was the wrong day. So thanks for straightening me out on that June 1st uh, uh, date.
1: I'll sing you that song from Carousel a little later, uh, Kevin. But I won't do it. We can all look forward to that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Coker, editor in chief of The Current, uh, which is based down in Savannah and uh, which covers the news of the coast, but really covers all of Georgia in its online format at The Current, thecurrentga.org. How are you, Margaret?
3: Thanks. I'm glad to be here um, and excited to tell your listeners about um, Georgia's newest historic marker uh, that's commemorating one of our original suffragists here in Savannah, Mamie George Williams.
1: I, I, I'm i glad we're going to get a chance to talk about that later. As as you know, I saw that uh, on your website the other day and thought it was a wonderful story, and we'll get to it a little later in the show and around our journalists on today's show, Chauncey Alcorn, a reporter for Capital B, is back with us. Chauncey, I think you'd agree with me. Things just aren't slowing down at any point anymore, are they?
4: Never a dull moment in uh, Georgia politics, and a pleasure as always to join you, Bill.
1: And we're also joined by Professor Tammy Greer, a professor of political science, now off on a summer vacation um with her triplets uh, are you going to send them off to camp at some point this summer Tammy
0: yes camp starts Tuesday so <laughs> they get to they get to enjoy camp for six weeks <laughs> oh
1: that's wonderful well thank you all so much uh, for being here for today's show um uh, let's start with what of course has been the biggest story in politics uh, uh for a week now and will continue to be In the days ahead, Uh, last night, the U.S. House did in fact pass the compromise measure uh, uh, that Kevin Riley and President Biden's teams put together that allows for the debt ceiling uh, to be raised by June 5th, which the Treasury Department, Janet Yellen says, is now the day at which the um, country will run out of money to pay its bills. Uh, the vote was 314 to 117, so it wasn't even close. But what's fascinating about this is that um, Georgia—I mean, I'm sorry—Republicans provided 149 votes for the measure, while Democrats had to do the heavier lifting. 165 Democrats uh, voted for it, um, and Kevin Riley, as we also know, four Georgia members of the, of, of the U.S. House. Uh, voted against the measure Uh, but the deal is done in the house now it goes to the senate uh
2: yeah bill i have to mention i'm sure your listeners caught this but a little slip of the tongue you said president biden and kevin riley worked out this deal i did follow it closely (laughs) and had a lot of thoughts about it uh, that i wanted to share with the president but instead he chose to speak with that other kevin mccarthy uh the uh speaker of the house and I actually think McCarthy is the story on this, which is uh, he he couldn't actually muster enough Republican votes to really, you know, get this passed. He had to depend on the Democrats. So there are questions about whether he can last in that job. On the other hand, he did position himself as negotiating directly with the president and as a powerful person in this uh, in this situation. So uh, it remains to be seen whether he can uh maintain control of his caucus in the uh, house of representatives and what other kinds of things are going to come up as, uh, as this term goes along.
1: Um, Chauncey, we can talk about the overall uh, uh, measure and, and the fact that, uh, yes, Kevin McCarthy, thank you for the correction, Kevin Riley, uh, uh, what problems he may face in the days ahead. Um, but let's talk about the Georgians, um, three Republicans, Rich McCormick, Andrew Clyde and Mike Collins voted against the measure, um, and so did Democrat uh, Nakima Williams. Um, so it's interesting. Make- Nakima Williams uh, uh, was quoted in, in the AJC as saying, while well, I'm glad that our party bailed out the Republican Party, uh, a dig at, at McCarthy, and passed this so that we're not facing a catastrophic default on our debt in this country, I had to make sure I was uplifting the voices of the people who are left out of the conversation. Um, Among her concerns, I assume she's saying, uh, Chauncey, is that there is a work requirement added to the measure uh, uh, that Republicans insisted be in their work requirement for food stamps. Chauncey?
4: Yeah, there was a great piece in The Atlantic yesterday that talked about basically the um, co-signing of the president on this work requirement issue which is dumb, disproportionately and seems to be you know a dig at um people who are impoverished who um, need these benefits and uh you know increasing the requirements on them is just a way to kind of to dig at the um, poor the working poor um who um you know need these benefits to survive in some cases and to pay and to pay for their food and, and pay bills. Um, it's interesting to me that the uh, the perception of who's winning and who's losing in this argument, um I think is um going for the most part in Democrats' favor. um there uh, certainly uh, Speaker McCarthy is going to be uh getting a lot of push from the right um on this who basically think it wasn't painful enough, uh, frankly, for Biden um uh, you know, looking a year out from the election. And how this, you know, could potentially have uh, been catastrophic. Any, the economy is always a key issue in any uh, presidential election, and uh, you certainly a uh, default and uh, the uh, likely recession it would trigger would not have been good for the president. Um, and uh, but it's also possible that that could have been bad for perceived as a uh, you know Republicans being blamed for this as well. So I think obviously for for most folks, uh, assuming that the Senate does does uh, pass this in the coming days and when the debt ceiling does get raised, it's going to be a, a net win for Americans that the that the economy will not tank, uh, particularly in Georgia with thirteen. Uh, you know, military bases um, and lots of military veterans and federal employees who would be impacted by uh, a default and, uh, you know, a resulting shutdown as, as a result.
1: Uh, Mar- Margaret, uh, you're welcome to weigh in on any of what we've already begun talking about. But let me add one element. Uh, Rich McCormick was asked why he voted against the bill, and he said this. Um, GOP leadership negotiated with President Biden in good faith, understanding the limitations of our positions, but I am a no on on the uh, uh, compromise because it fails to address the root problems of Washington spending addiction. And Margaret, I I have to say, this is exactly what's wrong with the way this whole debt ceiling uh, 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 confrontation seems to always play out these days. This is not a bill on spending. It is simply a mechanism that allows the government to pay for bills already incurred.
3: That's correct. And what gets lost in a lot of these sound bites is that both parties, when they take power on a federal level, they love to spend. They just have different priorities on what they want to spend our money on. And so this is. Um, We'll, you know, in deep in the weeds of of what the House just passed, you'll see some of those uh, conflicting priorities, right? There's there's new um, new language in there that's going to help streamline uh, um, new new permits for for energy companies to to um, both um, um, dig and possibly get more domestic oil um, and other energy sources in the U.S. As we've already mentioned, there's new work requirements for. Working people who are uh, need food stamps in order to pay their bills, as Chauncey has said. So there's there is um, a lot of different layers of this very important debate that we're having right now as a nation. Um, the mo the at the final analysis, though, it seems like both parties, uh, instead of having you know, a high noon shootout have actually put their guns down and come to the table and made some sort of compromise. And I think that's exactly what every poll in America for years and years now has has said that they want from our government. We want compromise. We don't want extremists to be in power. And I would take a slightly different tack than than the rest of our panelists so far and say that I think one of the biggest winners here is President Biden himself. You know, he has spent his entire life in Congress, his adult life in Congress, and he has always built himself as a master negotiator and someone who knows the way of, of, you know, the power avenues in Washington, D.C. He and his team, well, his team spent most of last week huddled with Speaker McCarthy, and they they took out the rest of the, the congressional Democratic leadership and went one-on-one as a president who, who thinks he knows best when it comes to crafting compromise legislation. Then they also spent hours and hours over Memorial Day weekend briefing then Congressional Democratic leadership and committee members so that everyone felt comfortable going back and and supporting what is indeed a compromise. So compromise has been a terrible, dirty word in American politics. It looks like that this might actually be the word of our of our next weekend um, and the coming days as we bypass this terrible cliff edge that we've been on.
1: Um, Tammy, you know what? Uh, a South Carolina Republican Congresswoman, Nancy Mace, would agree that President Biden scored a victory. She came out against the measure from the compromise from the start. But uh, once uh, the uh, it was being introduced to be voted on, she tweeted out, and, and just t- typical of the kind of crude approach to social media that we see so much of, she said President Biden's a guy who can't even find his pants, and yet he beat us. Uh, in terms of the way this agreement uh, worked out. But it still has to go to the Senate. And there are members on both sides of the aisle who have some significant problems with this compromise, Tammy.
0: Right. So um, I've always found that people who who, uh, call names really don't have any facts to stand on. So it's better to create a distraction. Um, So, Bill, what I found very interesting in this whole discussion is um, that in 114th Congress, Collins, Isaacson, and Purdue from Georgia all okay. voted for um, to raise the debt ceiling. In the 115th Congress, which is after the Trump tax cuts, um, Collins voted yes. Um, in the 116th Congress, Collins voted yes. Um, so it appears to be it just depends on who's in office. Well, whether or not um, some people will have this, um, this stance against the raising the debt ceiling. Um, So I find that fascinating. I also find it, uh, you know, this is almost symbiotic of of John Boehner. So it's a deja vu moment. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with McCarthy, especially when he gave up that, um, you know, this notion of uh, one person can bring to the floor of the House, uh, whether or not the speaker can maintain Um, to echo everyone else's point. You know, the purpose of divided government, divided Congress, and the U.S. form of government is compromise. It's in the Constitution. This is one of the things that um, I find very fascinating, that the masses, the the majority, are lost when there's a compromise. The extremes take up all the space, yet the majority, the majority of Congress, that was a huge Um, yes vote in Congress to say yes to raising the debt ceiling. Um, I also find it interesting, um, sometimes I don't know if we say it plainly enough, that the House of Representatives is a politically driven entity because they're on a two-year cycle as compared to every other level and every other entity um, appears to be more of a governing um, stance because they have to do more.
1: Uh, let, let's uh, be careful about one aspect of, of this, Tammy. Uh, Matt Collins uh, did, in fact, vote for debt ceiling raises uh, through his career. Uh, his son, Mike Collins, who's a freshman, Mike Collins. Uh, yeah, has now cast the vote uh, against the debt uh, ceiling. Nevertheless, I think your point is fair that uh, the party seems to vote uh, uh, for or against it, depending on who's in the White House. Kevin?
2: yeah i want to uh you know build on what what tammy said i mean in the end 149 republicans voted for this and 165 democrats and so it was a big victory by by a large margin and only 71 republicans voted against it and 46 democrats opposed it and it is it, it is a bit of the I, you know i just don't know how else to say it but the fault of the media that Twice as many Republicans voted for it, but we're hearing about the, by proportion, the very small number who voted against it. And, you know, sort of same with the Democrats. And I get that journalistic impulse and it's a necessity to at least represent those who voted against it. But this was not close. This point of view of we ought to default so that we can get our way is not at all what most people want. And it's important to remember that.
1: So, um, Chauncey, I've said a couple times this week that there are things that are kind of like optical illusions in this compromise. For instance, I do understand why Democrats are concerned about this added work requirement that extends uh, the requirement from uh, age 49 to 55 um, uh, before people can get food stamps. But the simple fact of the matter is, at the, in theory, Democrats don't want any work requirement at all. I understand that. But in practical terms, uh, the way this compromise is written, more people are going to be covered by food stamps. And in fact, the cost of food stamps is going to increase in the budget ahead because veterans are exempted from the work requirement. The homeless are exempted from the work requirement, as, as are others. So in some ways, this is part of the illusion that Republicans got what they wanted out of this. Um, Again, I get it. Democrats think work requirements are awful, period, and that Biden should never agree to it. Uh, But go ahead and respond to what I'm asking about.
4: Yeah, I think you kind of underscored um one of the points of why President Biden is being pers- uh, perceived as winning on this issue. Um this could have been a lot worse. Um if this if the debt ceiling didn't get raised, um, which it still hasn't, but if uh, assuming that it's it's on it's on its way, but uh it could have been calamitous for the economy. Um and uh and it seemed like going into this that Republicans held all the held all the bargaining chips you know and they could um you know uh, president biden initially had said he wasn't going to negotiate on the on raising the debt ceiling and ultimately capitulated on that um and uh it you know it could have been a lot worse um in terms of that regard but i think on principle um this myth long standing myth of the welfare queen uh that uh, you know uh reagan um era democrats uh, republicans uh have uh been touting since the 80s is one that, you know, still stands today and, you know, as though um, federal spending on, um, you know, safety net programs um, is anywhere near what it is, say, on military spending or, um, you know, subsidies for corporations. And uh, Democrats oppose that on that principle that, you know, there's certainly way more money that goes into the budget on the on those other items than they than does, you know, food stamps or, you know, uh, um, free lunch uh, for for, uh, for poor people when uh, the kids go on to school. So I think that's the reason.
1: Uh, Margaret uh, and then Tammy. Uh, Margaret, first, you track Buddy Carter, your congressman down there in the first district, very closely in the current. Uh, and uh, a headline uh, that you had the other day was Carter tiptoes through debt ceiling saga. Now, he ended up voting for it but you use him as an example of how cautious Republicans particularly have had to be in talking about this deal.
3: yeah, it it really has been a, a minefield for um for for Republicans like our um, first district representative, Buddy Carter, because. They have come to office talking the talk of fiscal responsibility, and there's nothing more fiscally irresponsible than allowing the U.S. to default on its debt payments. So, trying to walk that line has been tough. I will say that Buddy Carter has made, um, you know, made quite a, a name for himself as as being the person to um, lick his finger, stick it up, and see which way the wind's blowing and vote accordingly. He's not someone who 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 is a a natural um, uh, cohort with the Freedom Caucus, although sometimes he votes with them, sometimes he votes against them. His district is—it's um, interesting because as the the real donor um, money set of Republicans here in Chatham County are very much or middle of the road Republicans in in today's parlance, the the base is is moving more and more away from um, the Kemp wing of of our state party and more towards the Trump wing. Um, our the newly elected representative for our district's republicans going to the state convention next week is Candace Taylor who is anything but a pro excuse me a pro camp um, republican so buddy carter is going to columbus next week candace taylor is going to Columbus next week. Everyone is going to Columbus next week, trying to figure out what what personality they're going to bring to voters moving into 2024. And I think that ultimately is what Buddy Carter's tightrope has been about, how he's going to position himself for his next run at office, whatever office that's going to be, rather than any real ideology about what what spending um, priorities he wants or the people in the first district want.
1: Thank you uh, for that. Tammy, me, let me give you the last word before we've got to get to a break.
0: Sure, um, I, I, it's important I think for us to be clear about this work requirement thing because it's thrown out there um, just as a work requirement. Um, it's important to note that states are the ones that manage um, med- um, food stamps and, and the SNAP program, not the federal government. So if a state has high unemployment, then more people are put into that pool. And so the work requirement is not as heavy on those particular states or even municipalities that have high unemployment unemployment because they don't have the available jobs. So the blanketed statement bill, to your point, um, that this is hindering a a particular set of people um, is not true when you look at it on a case-by-case basis, um, which again goes to the importance of voting on your state and local level and not just your federal level when it comes to spending federal funds um, that that go directly to the people. Also, that there are the compromises that are in the the, the bill um, that passed last night, there, there are cuts for items that Republicans want, and there are cuts for items that Democrats want. So again, to what we talked about at the very beginning, this is a true compromise, and depending on the lens to which you want to view it, then you can find fault with it, yet everyone gains and everyone probably misses out on a few items.
1: Tammy, be, uh, one last p- p- point, though, and I want you to respond to this before I've got to get to a break. There's no question that Democrats feel that when President Biden compromised on a work requirement for food stamps, he crossed a line that Democrats in states across country and in Congress really believe should never be crossed, that work requirements for any form of federal assistance are simply wrong, correct?
0: I can see that, yet it doesn't make it doesn't help in reality. In reality, we have an aging workforce. In reality, we have um, we still need to get tax dollars in order to fund uh, federal programs and state and local level fr- programs. So, from from an from an ideal standpoint, perhaps I can see it. Yet, from a practical standpoint, it's not real.
1: Okay, um, we've got to get to our first break of the show. We're gonna keep following the the debt ceiling debate as it moves to the Senate. We'll be back with other stories in just a moment.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else join me peter biello for this quick and convenient way to get the best of gpb news's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you
4: delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon
1: tammy greer chauncey Elcorn, margaret coker and kevin riley join me for today's political rewind um kevin Controversy over the planned Atlanta Police Training Center is simply not going away. And in fact, there have been a couple of news stories in the past week, one of them that just broke overnight, that are going to do, uh, are are going to simply gin up the controversy even more. Uh, Let's look at what we learned uh, overnight. Three people have now been charged with fraud and money laundering. In connection with the funds that have been raised to support opposition to the training center, according to the GBI, SWAT teams, uniformed officers, crime scene investigators from the Atlanta Police Department, I think the DeKalb Police Department were involved in part of this, made the arrests of these three people. I I have to be quite honest, Kevin. The charges of money laundering and fraud, for me, are a little complicated right now. I I have a hard time explaining them, and I think so do other people. We're going to learn more as these cases come to court, as there's arraignments and the like. But the fact is that uh, this is another example of the fact that uh, law enforcement is intending uh, to get as tough as possible on the opponents of the uh, training center.
2: Yeah, it is going to be uh, hard to get a handle on this, Bill. I will mention uh, for people who are interested in it, if you go to AJC.com, you can actually read the affidavits that were filed uh, that resulted in the warrants. Uh, And I do think for average people, uh, this, this is going to be one of those things like what is going on? Why are they doing this? Why aren't we dealing with the actual issues at hand Um, now? Uh, the supporters of the protests and the, and the folks who are actually protesting today at the DeKalb County Jail, even as we speak, um, are saying, "Hey, this was a classic effort to make sure that we had money to bail people out of jail when they got arrested during protests, which is a long-standing practice in in." organizations that protest that, you know, was a common thing in the civil rights movement. And then the GBI is saying, well, no, you were misleading people about your fundraising, and you are an organization that has been deemed uh, uh, dangerous, and therefore you can't raise money this way. I don't imagine they would file charges if they felt like they couldn't prove the charges or felt like they had a decent case and then arrest these people. But I do think it's going to just uh, fuel the fire. I don't see any way it doesn't do that.
1: Yeah. And of course, Chauncey, we should point out, this comes after we know any number of uh, protesters have been uh, charged with domestic terrorism and are facing significant uh, charges. Now uh, the arrests in this case seem to be part of that classic uh line follow the money
4: yeah i think uh what's uh there's a lot of things that are not clear yet but what is uh clear to me um as we uh are prepared preparing for the uh looming city council vote on using public funds to help construct the training center uh, uh that critics call cop city is that uh the uh folks in um the and the gold Dome and the, uh, the governor's Mansion um is you know in addition to um police forces are committed to crippling what is likely to be an entrenched um resistance effort um from activists locally and from around the country to uh disrupt the deconstruction of this facility um if and when it is approved and uh you know um, by uh, city council members um and, they, and uh they seem you know committed to ensuring that what is likely to happen they don't want Atlanta to become Portland or New York um post uh the non-indictment of Daniel Pantaleo, the officer who uh uh was in, uh involved in Eric, um, Eric Garner's uh, chokehold death. Um, they don't want us uh to see the ongoing um anti-fascist resistance that you saw in Portland for and even to this day. Um, and uh, you know, um activists taking over sections of 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 uh the downtown in Portland. Uh they don't want that to happen here. And they're uh de- um, dead set on preventing it by any means necessary. And there are folks on the other side who are dead set on preventing. The training center from being built um, by any means necessary. So it's it's uh, seems like a warning shot um, in in um, what's gonna uh, which could potentially be a a long standing battle over this facility.
1: Uh, Tammy uh, uh, Capital B, as well as other publications, also also uh, reported out a story that is fueling even more controversy. Uh, Atlanta City Council was preparing at one point, and Mayor Dickens said. That the Atlanta share of building this training center was something like 30 plus 31 million dollars. It now turns out, Tammy, that in fact the city is on the hook for twice that amount through the leaseback arrangement that the contract calls for, in which the city will be paying a le- lease costs uh, back to the training center uh, for its uh, use by their fire and police. So here's another matter that is just going to add more fire uh, fuel to the fire
0: yeah it I'm unsure how the seat of Atlanta can get out of its own way um, I'm unclear of the lack of transparency uh, with the city with all of the things that have gone on. how is the the city, the mayor, council members, um, all that's associated the the comms space. How are they not? Having a, a different thought that the transparency is necessary in order to quiet down some of the critics. I also think it's interesting the push onto the police foundation. The police foundation is not elected by the people. So, uh, where are the elected officials and how are they handling this particular situation? I found the mayor's comments um, very interesting to the East Atlanta community that they've, he has been out here talking, his staff members have been talking. That's great, but it's the quality, not the quantity. Where are the, the thoughtful um, responses back to the public on specific issues that they are concerned with? How did no one think that? An an additional 30 plus million dollars is going to have an impact on the city and the city's response, uh, the people's response to that additional uh, tax dollars, especially when we're already talking about the, the, um, the property taxes that those of us that live in the city, how much we incur and where's the money going. So I am very curious as to when someone is going to say, okay, let's be full with this. Let's have um, a document with headers to say, here's finances, here's the proposed um, activities. Here is what we're doing from an environmental standpoint. The lack of clarity and the lack of transparency is almost creating the chaos. And I'm curious to see um, what is the next shoe to drop in this lack of transparency with the city of Atlanta?
1: Uh, Margaret, I want to bring you in, but I'll comment very quickly on what you're saying, Tammy. Part of this is the Atlanta Police uh, Foundation is accountable to no one and has no transparency requirement for anybody, and they are driving this thing uh, uh, forward. Margaret?
3: Yeah, from Savannah, this feels like a discussion that's a way far away. But I will say that in in these arguments about transparency and our public taxpayer dollars and our public servants, you know, if this is a if this is an an issue that is engaging um, the residents in greater Atlanta, then public servants have a duty to us all to be transparent about not only the plans for a facility, but also how they're going to how they're going to pay for it you know here in coastal georgia i have to say the stories that we do time and again about public safety the criminal justice system and policing you know people from across all fault lines no matter how much money you earn what um, is the color of your skin people want cops that they can trust they want cops that that are well trained and they they want cops to to obey the law and treat everyone equally. So there's, you know, those are the discussions that happen in our part of the state here. And I hope that that there will be no more loss of life as the training center, Cop City in Atlanta, moves forward.
2: I think it's important to add that it's uh, that it's hard to overstate the influence of the Atlanta Police Foundation. Uh, we've done stories that show it, it's one of the most uh, influential, powerful police foundations of any city in the country and they have driven this process and they've actually driven a lot of things in the city many of which uh people are happy with and very proud of for example when you look at the camera system throughout Atlanta which has you know been helpful in solving crimes and tracking down people uh, including in the recent Midtown shooting, the, the police foundation has been the place where that has found the money to do that, provided that, you know, created the help for the city there. They've also got a program that um, helps police officers buy homes in the city or in the areas where they work. So there are a lot of good things going on. So they're very influential. But I think something of this magnitude and its complexity and the necessity to build consensus among uh, the neighborhoods, all of that seems to have put them in the spot of going too far, too fast. And until that can be resolved, I don't think this issue is going away.
1: Um, Before we get off the subject, Chauncey, you've already said it, but uh, let me ask you to uh, talk about it a little bit more. Uh, You have every expectation that next week City Council will approve uh, this deal that starts at 31 million but again will double with the leaseback arrangement
4: um i won't say that you know there's a certainty on this um there uh, i've spoken with uh, multiple city council members uh, who have said that they expect that it will be approved um there are certainly uh, uh folks on council who are still undecided on the, how they will vote and folks who have uh, um been dead set to vote against it um, regardless. Um, it doesn't appear that the revelation um last late last week that the total cost to taxpayers is going to be at least 67 million um has uh changed anybody's minds. People who uh who had intentions to vote for it um have said that they still intend to. Folks who are against it still intend to. Folks who are on the fence are still on the fence and still listening to their constituents. Um, that being said, I think that there, what is also clear from the council members, uh, uh, multiple council members who've talked to me, they feel the city has done a horrible job communicating about this um, from the jump. And that mm-hmm. doesn't just uh, include Mayor Andre Dickens' administration, that includes Keisha Lance Bottoms' administration. And they also say that they are concerned that the that the uh, facility could end up costing more, even more than uh what has already been stated uh there certainly uh there was a story we did at capital b atlanta on the uh atlanta department of transportation hearing a week or two ago uh, um, where the uh, current commissioner um solomon kavanis had to hear get an earful from city council members about um backlogs on road improvement projects that you know the city had um, allocated money for that voters um approved bond um levies for in 2016 and um uh, um cabinets who just started the job in uh January um you know reported to council uh a few uh, uh a few weeks ago that uh at least 38 of those projects haven't even st- uh are still in pre-construction phase and it's eight years later so um the cost of this could. Uh, of council members are worried that the training center could end up doing the same thing and costing folks down the road if you know inflated costs go up and things of that nature
1: all right chauncey alcorn gets the last word on this segment of political rewind a lot more to talk about after these messages
4: at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster sometimes you need to hit pause
1: You already earlier in the show referred to the fact that uh, Savannah is going to send a pretty far right group of Republicans to the state convention in Columbus, which starts a week from tomorrow uh, on Friday, the 9th and Saturday, the 10th, including Candace Taylor, former candidate for governor, who, by the way, who, by the way, uh, believes the earth is flat and has talked about the conspiracy to uh, 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 assume that the earth is a globe, and she's been all over social media promoting her flat-earth thinking. But, that, nevertheless, what's interesting about next week is that Mike Pence was originally scheduled, as we all know, to be the keynote speaker on the Friday session of the convention. Trump will be the Saturday speaker. Um, But, in fact, now Pence has dropped out. Uh, Not quite clear why. His organization says he has some kind of town meeting couple days before that. But David Schaefer, the chair of the party, has replaced Pence with Carrie Lake, who, of course, was the Republican candidate for governor in Arizona, one of the MAGA-ist of all candidates in the 2022 election cycle. And her presence there will simply more, more completely confirm that the state party is truly in the grip of MAGA thinkers.
3: Yeah, this is a this is going to be um, quite an, an interesting event to attend and watch how everybody either tries to kiss and make up or who um, who tries to stand away from each other at um, on the podiums and the photo ops. I mean, I, I think that. That one of the people you just mentioned, David Schaefer, is is one of the most uh, powerful lightning rods that that people who are attending the conference um, have to contend with. If you're going to run for president, like Mike Pence is is expected to do, do you really want a photo with you and someone who might be indicted later this summer for breaking uh, for breaking the laws in Georgia about the 2020 election and the fake? elector um, scandal I don't know that you do I do know that that if you are are um, keeping your your head up and trying to figure out what your next political moves are um, in terms of statewide office you're going to go and figure out again, um, get as many photo ops uh, with you as with as many people as possible and use them for your campaign literature come next year. You know, I think that everyone in both the state Republican Party and nationally now are trying to figure out what is their risk and reward of coming to Georgia, the bellwether state that needs to flip back to red if people are going to win federal office and, um, you know, and has this um, has this really, really rare, you uh, you know, I, I think responsibility as as well as power within um, the direction that we're going with American politics.
1: And of course, Kevin, uh, Governor Kemp, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, uh, and other state Republican leaders in office are, are boycotting the state convention. The governor has set up his own independent apparatus, a leadership group, uh, and and seems to have no interest in being part of the state. GOP, Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor, highest ranking Republican, will be at that convention next week.
2: Well, it's true. And, and, and a couple of things. I know that uh, we can't have a show where we don't uh, mention Marjorie Taylor Greene. She'll be there, too. So we got that out of the way, Bill. Um, <laughs> all that said, uh, let's remember just how far off the, uh, you know, uh, far afield Carrie Lake is she ran for governor in Arizona in 20, you know, 2022, the last election and lost, and she still hasn't conceded. She is still, I mean, so she's, you know, not conceding that she's not conceding Donald Trump's, uh, Election, So I think this idea that she can get on the bandwagon of the, the world is not round is not going to be a very big step. I mean, because apparently reality has basically no intrusion into her thinking, which is, I suppose, a gift in its way.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for that, uh, Kevin Riley. Um, I, I, I'd i like to uh, move on to another another subject. There's two more issues I'd really like to get in today. So I'm going to turn to you, Chauncey, uh, and to you, Tammy, to uh, help us with another story that has bubbled up to the surface uh, in the last 24 hours. On Tuesday's show, we spent a good amount of time talking about the right-wing activists who have increasingly tried to start boycotts against businesses that support things they think are wrong. And and the biggest example of that, of course, is that Target, which every year has promoted merchandise uh, uh, for the LGBT community during Pride Month, which is happening starting now, June, um, because of, of protesters, social media uh, comments and the like, some actual fights in the stores themselves, In some stores, they've removed the LGBTQ-oriented merchandise. In others, they've put it in the back of the store. They've caved to the pressure. And now it appears that perhaps Chick-fil-A is going to be subjected to the same um, pressure because they just hired a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there is a campaign out there on social media to say Chick Fil A has quote gone woke, whatever the heck being woke means.
4: Chauncey, first of all, I just want to say Chick Fil A is delicious, um, and I will not, uh, I do not condone any Chick Fil A slander. Uh, it's one of my favorite fast food restaurants and uh, staple of Georgia. But nevertheless, that's <laughs> that's that, that set aside. <laughs> um yeah the interesting thing the reports indicate that uh chick-fil-a's had a dei program since at least 2020. a lot of these uh major corporations have kind of upped the ante on their dei efforts um in the aftermath of the police a murder of george floyd um more than three years ago now um and it's it's funny you know the, the way things work on twitter and in uh social media when things get discovered or rediscovered. Um, this is not a new thing for for Chick-fil-A. Obviously Chick-fil-A is also known as a uh, one of uh, a conservative company ironically um, because of its stance on LGBTQ um issues um and uh, the religious uh views of its uh founder so it's ironic uh to, to a lot of people including me that uh this is the company that is being accused of being too woke um when it was a company that conservatives championed uh, along with hobby lobbying and others and uh, you know even five years ago
1: yeah i, th- I think t- tammy the chauncey makes a great point it, it, it was the LGBT community and its supporters that wanted to boycott Chick-fil-A for so long because of Truett Cathy and his anti-gay uh, uh, pronouncements over uh, the years. But again, we come back to this notion that th- what wokeness means and how activists are taking using it to go after big companies.
0: Yeah. Uh, woke doesn't mean what they think it means. And so because of that, then it, um, it it's I like hijacked the entire conversation. I think it's very interesting. This goes back to some of the conservative talk over the past 10 years or so about um, um, keeping the U.S. Um, in a certain lens. And so those communities that have been traditionally underserved, underrepresented, under Um, focused on uh, it seems to you know that are getting some traction uh, today uh, you know goes along with this notion of replacement theory um, and it just like stoking an emotional center rather than something that's logical.
1: Kevin quick comment before we get to our last subject. Uh, quickly, well,
2: as Chauncey, I think, made the point, I mean, Chick-fil-A is basically one of the major food groups if you're a Georgian. But one of the things I wanted to mention is that a few years back during the gay marriage controversy, our cartoonist Mike Luckovich did what was maybe my all-time favorite cartoon in which the uh, Chick-fil-A cows are objecting to the marriage of Bert and Ernie. And I'll send that to Natalie so that you guys can maybe uh, post it on your uh, on your uh, site or on your social media because it is a fantastic cartoon.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, Thank you for that, Kevin. Um, All right, Margaret, uh, you mentioned it earlier in the show. You have a wonderful feature on The Current uh, right now uh, about a new state marker honoring a woman who was a genuine pioneer. We have just a couple minutes, but I really want you to tell us about her.
3: Yeah, you know, when um, when wokeness becomes a, a talking point, I think we all deserve to go back to history to find out what our parties and our politics looked like 100 years ago. But well, here in Savannah, we had this extraordinary woman named Mamie George Williams, a Black woman who was born just after the end of the Civil War, someone who um, was one of the original suffragists. She was someone who, uh, who used her talent, her education, her money, to help register voters. She was the head of the Georgia Republican Party in 1920. She was the first American woman to speak at a national Republican convention. She was someone who had a national profile from little Savannah. And it's extraordinary to me you know, how um, how voting matters, how people who were on the forefront of civic engagement always knew that voting matters, and um, how we can thread a lots of different through lines of what Georgia politics are today by looking back at her and her extraordinary life.
1: And and um, Margaret, t- t- talk just very quickly about w- when was this marker unveiled and were members of her, descendants of hers there to uh, watch this happen?
3: Yeah, she was born, raised, and died here in Savannah. It, the The marker was unveiled uh, last Friday, and the sponsors of of the marker were actually the um, the Delta Thetas, the the Black Sorority. Uh, we also had the League of Women Voters and the Georgia Historic Society. Uh, We didn't have any of her direct descendants there, but the marker stands right across the street from where she lived and uh, across the street from another great civil rights monument here in Savannah, the Carnegie Library, where black people were allowed to read books. Uh,
1: Thank you, it's a wonderful story. Kevin?
2: Yeah, and also, right, Margaret, that marker is the latest in the Georgia Historical Society's um, civil rights trail. And and the the Historical Society actually places and maintains the the markers in our state. So they they really do a great job with that.
1: Kevin, I think it's important and appropriate to give a a shout out to the Georgia Historical Society. They are extraordinary uh, in the work they do here in our state. All right, we're out of time for... Today's show, Tammy Greer, Margaret Coker, Chauncey Elcorn, and Kevin Riley. thank you so much for being uh, with us today. Uh, by the way, a, a, a group of leaders in, in uh, artificial intelligence, as you all may know by now, issued a report the other day that says that AI could lead to the extinction of humanity. And I mention that to you now because if you didn't hear our show last week with Paul Root Wolpe, the head of the Center for Ethics at Emory University talking about all the ethical issues involved in artificial intelligence and chatbots, I really urge you to go back, listen to it on our podcast or on our website, because he speaks to the very thing that this latest reporting suggests. All right, that's it. We're going to be back again with a brand new show tomorrow morning. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye-bye, everybody.